This is Jerry Carino for Left Coast Pirates talking Seton Hall basketball. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? What do you want me to say today, Tommy? What do you want me to say? Honestly, I had the chance to watch as great a game as you could expect for early November in college basketball. But here is my issue. I got a cousin named Tony Deziri, who is the host of SB Nation AM, he does a weekly morning show covering mainstream sports. And after the game the other night, he sends me a message saying the following. And I quote, I don't know if there really is such a thing as a good loss, but Seton Hall had one against MSU. They look really good this year. As diehard of a fan, I already knew Seton Hall was going to look like a really good team this year. I didn't need a moral victory in this one. I wanted us to take advantage of an opportunity that was right in front of us for the taking. If the Pirates were going to announce their presence, on the national stage, I wanted it to be as the bride for once and not the damn bridesmaid. In any year other than this one, I would have been happy. And to be honest with you, I should be happy. As a team, the Pirates acquitted themselves very well last Thursday night. But I can't help have that feeling that we had a missed opportunity. Missed opportunities, Michael. I think sometimes that the history of this program is built on missed opportunities. 1989, 92-93, the 2000 recruiting class, most of Isaiah's run. Last year, we just have all these missed opportunities. We get to the precipice and we don't push through. And we are not a program that can afford to have missed opportunities. We're not one of the Blue Bloods as much as we'd like to join. We have to take advantage of these things. We need to take the bull by the horns, Michael. And I think that's what happened this week. We were two minutes away, Michael, and we're going to go in depth about it. We had a primetime game, Michael, with a primetime opponent, with a national audience, and it slipped away. It just it, you know slipped what? away. I, I'm... I'm not that annoyed by the loss itself. I'm just tired of hearing other people kind of pat us on the back more than anything else. Well, that, that's the thing. Oh, oh, you guys are going to look good this year. Ah, oh, don't hang your head after that performance. Ah, oh, you're, you're, you're proving that you're going to be a final four team. I want to be ranked in the top 10. I, I want to knock well, off a team that's that, that's top three that's not inside of our conference for the first time in program history. It, it was right there to, for, for the taking. It almost sounds, Mike, like we had a bad week, but not everything was wrong this week. So with that in mind, this week, we'll talk about that Michigan State game. The NCAA's ruling on the recruiting tampering charges and their ramifications. The just-concluded St. Louis game. And maybe, just maybe, is Miles Powell back on track to the road to 2,494? Let's see. All right, let's just get right into the recap. So Michigan State 76, Seton Hall 73. The story to start the game was that Miles Powell gets the start. It was closely contested throughout most of the first half, 21 to 18 early on. And then Cassius Winston picks up his second foul with 8.43 to go and his team leading by three. But Michigan State extended to their largest lead of the game at seven before Seton Hall used a nine to two run to tie it at 27. Rocket Watts answered back with a three-pointer, lead Michigan State into the break up 30 to 27. In the second half, both Powell and Winston elevated their play as both teams traded blows back and forth. It was a half that featured 10 lead changes and nine ties over the course of an intense 20 minutes. The Hall took a five-point lead with 2.43 to play on a Powell-made three, but watched MSU answer with two clutch transition threes 
to take the lead right back. After two Miles Powell's free throws, freshman Malik Hall hit the final go-ahead basket before two questionable non-calls sealed the fate of the Pirates. Final tallies on the game. Winston, 21 points, although only on 6 of 17 shooting, but he hit three big threes in the second half and had 17 of his 21 after the break. The surprise was Malik Hall, a freshman for Michigan State, who scored 17 points on 7 of 7 from the floor, 3 of 3 from deep, all in the second half, and these were the first points he scored in his collegiate career. We saw Miles Kale sighting again with 12 points, 3 of 4 from deep in the second half. Gill was just a beast on the defensive end, 8 rebounds, 5 blocks, 1 steal. Most of that damage, though, coming in the first half. Powell, 37 points on 12 of 27 from the floor, 6 of 14 from 3. Mike, I told you I wasn't going to believe that he wasn't going to play until I saw one of those medical reports and what happened he played and boy did he play it a performance for the ages he did it in front of a national tv audience supposedly there were up to 24 scouts in attendance watching this game against the number three nationally ranked team Michigan State is one heck of a defensive team, and Miles Powell was shredding them. As a matter of fact, at the end of the game, Izzo says, I don't think God could have guarded him today. While the Miles Powell show was phenomenal. We're just not surprised by it anymore. I mean, this is not the first time he's put them on their backs and just become... Superman on the court, a man amongst boys, just playing at an elite level in the zone. And we keep on going on and on with the different comparisons of how elite his play was on on that given night. I'm more annoyed as to kind of the storyline leading up to this. Did did we have to kind of sit on pins and needles for five days with the the doctor's reports or people telling me, oh, I had an ankle injury once in my lifetime, so therefore he should be able to play or it's, it's day to day, he's out a month. It was really annoying more than anything else, but it, it kind of added to the lore of what he was able to do in this performance by kind of taking the, the court, having the fans embrace what he brings to the atmosphere of that game. They said that when they called his name in the pregame warmups, you could not even hear his name because the crowd was so loud. I mean, people understand that Powell makes this team go, and man, did he make them go. Again, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, Mike, but I told you, until we heard final word from medical staff that he wasn't playing, I thought he was coming. And I don't care if he went from treatment to the seminary where the priest-to-be at Seton Hall were sitting there praying over his ankle, splashing it with holy water. He came out, he played, he looked good. The only negative, he looked a little out of sorts in the sense that he seemed a little winded toward the end of the game. (laughs) Every possession went through him. I'm sorry. I I would have been winded too. He wasn't playing one-on-one and taking over the game. There are points where he was going two-on-one, three-on-one. He was hitting shots that, you know, were reminiscent to the Kentucky game back at the Garden where you're like, nah, that didn't just go in. He put himself in a position not to just get back on track for Biggie's Player of the Year. He put himself in the spotlight to make a name for National Player of the Year. You know, we were kind of surprised that he made some of those lists or were like, wow, I can't believe he's come that far. He made a statement in that game to be in that conversation for the rest of the year. So if there's any kind of like side story you want to take away from this loss, Powell kind of stamped his ticket to be like, you got to watch me for the rest of the year from a national audience perspective. He did have a little help during the game, Mike. One of the points I brought up last week was if I'm Kevin Willard, I need to get Miles Kale's head screwed on right. And Miles came back this game. He shot the ball very well, especially in the second half. He seemed to be back to his old self. Tommy, I totally agree with you. We keep on saying we need to find, you know, the the Robin to his Batman, or we just need a, a more consistent supporting cast. Kale all of a sudden shows up in the second half, hitting a couple big triples. Actually, I think he hit three in the second half finishing three of four from deep. But did you know that he only took six shots for the entire game? So you're telling me he's kind of finding his groove, but we can't find him more than six shots in the entire offense? Well, you know, Mike, again, we're going to probably talk about this a little bit later, but at this point, our offense is basically Powell and Prey. Goes through miles, or it's just, oh my goodness, where are we going to get it from, as opposed to running a traditional offense. But who do we say was going to be up for Defensive Player of the Year this year? Quincy McKnight. I still think he could be. And you know who's making a case for being Defensive Player of the Year? Romaro Gill, baby. He came in huge. Not only did he have five blocks, and you did mention that most of those blocks came in the first half, but I rewatched that second half, Mike, and he was changing shots just by being down low. I think that's important that you pointed that out. 
some people want to just look at the box score and go, oh, he had a good first half. He kind of disappeared in the second half. A guy who's 7-2, I'm, I'm going to say it, a legit 7-2, <laughs> and you all of a sudden block. Everybody drink. And all of a sudden you block four shots in the first half. You've now set the tone and the mindset for the rest of the game that if you're going to come into the middle, you got a good chance it's going to get sent right back in your face. So, yes, now he's altering shots or changing the defensive mindset of the team or the, uh, the offensive strategy for Michigan state without physically checking a tick box in the box score he doesn't have to end up with another four blocks in the second half to have that kind of an impact. That's how good he's playing right now. Every time he does it, I keep on looking back going, did I really think he was going to be this impactful of a player? And I keep on saying yeah, I was wrong and I'll be the first to admit it. Roe is a huge piece for the, of this team and a huge piece of the puzzle. If they're going to be successful you know, going deep into March. Now, what's amazing about staying so close through this game and even getting up by five with two minutes to go was we had a couple guys that just didn't show up at all, man. Sandro had a terrible game. He started off with two four shots, and it looked like he went to a shell of himself, and he did not look good. He went four of 11 for the night. He had four turnovers. Man, he seems to be pressing and, I, you know, Mike, I saw a little bit of the Sandro shrug come out. They cut away from it quick, but I saw the Sandro shrug. I, I can't get on my soapbox and, and defend Sandro here. He, he had a subpar game. I, I know he finished with nine and seven, but if you look beyond that box score, uh, you even pointed out to me a couple of those baskets were, you know, uncontested dunks because somebody else set him up. Uh, he's not as strong towards the rim as we'd like to see him. He did hit a big three to keep him in the game late. So I, I like the fact that he didn't shy away from his shot. But in those types of moments, we need Sandro to have a more impactful game than uh, a soft nine and seven, to be honest. And with all the hullabaloo that came out that he was making that next big step, he doesn't look like he's progressed much since last year. I, I, we're going to talk about this throughout the podcast. I, I don't think a lot of guys have taken that next step. So you can pick on Sandro. You can pick on Kale. We can pick on Roden after we break down the St. Louis game. The the takeaway for this segment that we're going to continue to talk about is how outside of Powell's 37 and a second half, you know, sighting of, of Miles Kale from behind the arc, there really was no supporting cast. Let, let, let's continue. So I'm glad you brought up Roden, Mike. Uh, we'll, we'll the man who you've been propping up as most no 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 the man who you've been propping up as most improved player of the Big East this year, man he looks lost and I don't want to bang on him but the boy looks lost. He had he a does. quiet four points in only 13 minutes. He doesn't look settled from the eyeball test. He looks overwhelmed for most of that evening, Michael. Kale was having a pretty solid game. We'll we'll, we'll talk about Kevin's rotations in a moment. Kale got 27 minutes. Roden only got 13. I, I would give him a pass and say because he didn't get as much floor time, maybe he didn't get into the rhythm of the game, but he didn't back it up with his next performance against St. Louis. So we'll talk some more about that. But, yes, I, I can't defend Roden right now. For somebody who is supposed to take this huge leap off the bench, be a consistent scorer, be this spark plug offensively, it's been lacking so far. And I, I, gotta, I, I, I can't avoid picking on Quincy McKnight a little bit. He brings what he brings to the defensive side of the ball. We do not question that whatsoever. However, we got to get more offense out of him. Two is six for four points, and I'm going to go back to picking on box scores again. Everyone's going to go, but but he had six assists. Six assists for a college point guard. That's a great night. You have to kind of look at the context of those six assists. And this is not to say that you know Q is a bad point guard. I, I just think there's six assists where you break down the defense and set everything up or you're in Kevin Willard's system and you're dribbling up high on the right-hand side uh, you know, of the circle and Powell comes off a double pin-down screen, you pass it over to him and he basically elevates over three defenders and hits a three where you're like, where'd that come from? And he's got like three or four of those assists to Miles throughout the course of the game. That, that was a, anybody can make that pass. I'm going to give Quincy a bit of a pass. He did an excellent job on Cassius Winston, especially in that first half. But yes, something lacks on that offense. There's a cohesion on that offense that just doesn't happen when he's out in the court. The offense runs a lot better when Nelson's on the floor. Is it the eye test? I mean, you talked about the eye test with Roden. Uh, Nelson did not have a great game. But when Nelson no. was on the floor in the second half, 
and he was running the offense, he was clearly beating his guy off the dribble and everything just seemed to kind of be more fluid, right? He makes the first pass and whether that guy takes the shot or not, Michigan State's defense was broken down. Everyone's got to kind of rotate over. We ultimately were getting good looks every time that Nelson was in the game and running the offense. This is not to say that Q shouldn't play, but I want to see Nelson more at the point. And I feel like this is going to be a repetitive theme throughout the entire year. I want to get it to a certain point, and, and I'm wondering in which direction we're going to go with this. You know, when we're happy with Coach Kevin Willard's performance in a game, we seem to call him Coach or we seem to call him Kevin. When we're unhappy with his performance, we tend to just go straight for the Willard. Mike, which coach are we talking about tonight? Willard got outcoached. I'm sorry, Willard got outcoached. I, I, I got like four or five bullet points on the subject matter. We'll go through each of them. We'll ho hopefully we won't belabor him too much. But this has become a, a repetitive theme with Willard. We don't have solid offensive sets. You said it earlier. You kind of stole my thunder here a little bit. I think the offense is Powell and Prey, or it's Nelson breaking down his man off pick and roll basketball or one-on-one -on -one up top. I hate the weave I'm, I'm kind of over it at this point and i'm gonna kind of nitpick on a couple sequences throughout the game that i thought cost us four to six points and when you're playing a team like michigan state you can't give away four to six points so there was a sequence where nelson is running the weave and the guy that was covering q or whoever it was kind of jumped jumped the weave a little bit on his man and nelson's like all of a sudden in midair dropping the ball to nobody and then michigan state takes it uh, coast to coast for a two-point basket. I was like, what the heck is that? And everyone's going to probably pick on Nelson for that. Seton Hall has gotten into this just kind of, let's go through the motions, run the weave for two or three passes, and then we'll get into our offense, which we, we say doesn't exist. But the point is, we've seen Villanova do it at times where they jump out high on it, and Michigan State did it there. It's, it's predictable, and it's getting annoying at this point. You know what's getting really annoying? Willard's been coaching Seton Hall now for 10 seasons, and it still seems that we do not get the ball out from under the basket without some problems. And and this game was no exception. We had one, the ball was passed out to the top to nobody. Michigan State grabs it, runs it back for an easy uncontested layup. And then we even got a five-second violation coming out of a timeout. How do you do that coming out of a timeout, Michael? It's inexcusable. It just really is. I mean, I watch other teams and their coaches run set plays out of these under-the-basket inbounds scenarios with the opportunity to create offense to score. And I'm just praying that we get the ball in and don't turn it over. Do you remember the days early in Willard's, Willard's tenure where the play was consistently to just heave it three-quarters court? Back into the backcourt. I and, and we were okay with that. I'm okay with that, I, I okay that, with right, that now. right now. That's not a turnover. Jeez, I'm, I, we're five minutes. We're like, what, 15 minutes of this podcast and I'm already fired up? Well, you know what? I think when Willard went to the tape and he heard Donnie Marshall say that he's getting into his mad scientist routine, I think he took that as an insult because there doesn't seem to be a mad scientist this game. I, I broke down the numbers, so bear with me on this. I think the numbers and reading this element of the box score tells a story that is accurate. I think right now he's playing positional substitutions and he's not looking for the combination of players that either give us a competitive advantage on the floor or matches up to the other team to take away an advantage that they might be presenting at the moment. So here's the box score in total minutes play for the Michigan State game. Powell plays 34, Shavar plays four. Two guard, backup two guard. Q plays 24, Nelson plays 18. Starting point guard, backup point guard. The, the two-minute differential there compensates for the two minutes that Shavar didn't play at the two guard. Obiagu, 12 minutes. Gill, 28. There's 40. Kale, 27. Roden, 13. There's another 40. Sandro, 31. Samuel, 9. Is it that transparent? That one guy comes in only for somebody else? We, we couldn't see any Sandro and Samuel combinations. I can't see the, the twin tower combinations. I can't go Roden and Kale at the same time. I, I don't, I don't get it. And we're going to get more into this. We're going to continue. I'm, I'm, I'm getting disgusted right now. <laughs> Can you imagine how we'd be feeling right now, Mike, if we lost by, by more than three? I mean, I think we'd be apocalyptic right now. No, see, I, I get more upset when we're in that type of close environment and your players are giving you 1000% 
You know, the, the crowd is as jacked up as it can be. We're missing the executional elements to put your team in a position to win. For example, we are not, or we have not been, a very good zone team. So they come out of the timeout after Powell puts them up by one, hitting those two free throws late, and we try to throw them a curveball and go zone. You know what? I've seen Willard do that before. It's tricky. There's your mad scientist on defense. But pick your right spot. All of a sudden, you're going to run this, you know, high extended zone against the best point guard in the country, the preseason national player of the year. And what does he do? He picks it apart, dissects it with a pass to the high post. And before you know it, there's a two on one in the paint against Gill and Hall attacks the basket for the go ahead layup. To me, you don't do that there. That, that, you know, that's, that's a little wrinkle that you throw out at like different points in the game. You wait for the last possession when you know we don't play zone well to begin with. I'm gonna bring up something from the past that folks might not know about. We had a private Seton Hall Pirates Facebook group and I used to make you write a good, the bad, and the ugly. And one thing that you seemed to pick upon in the past couple years was we're always getting burnt by somebody coming up with their career high against us. Now, this one might not be fair because one point would have been this kid's career high. However, Malik Hall finished with 17 points. He's a freshman for, for Michigan State. He went three for three from deep. Now, what I noticed as I was watching the, the game the second time through was a lot of times we had our big sticking this guy. And it was like Roe or Ike didn't want to rush out there and leave the middle open for someone to drive around them. But we were leaving a kid that was hot, wide open for easy jumpers. It's not like... You're joking, and he had one point. He scored 17 all in one half. And where was the in-game adjustment? And to me, I'm going to connect the dots back to this whole minutes allocation that I was kind of breaking down before. So here's Malik Hall. You know, he's, he's not just some bum off the bench. He's supposed to be a highly recruited freshman. But obviously, he didn't score against Kentucky in the first game of the year. And in 101 points that Michigan State put up against Binghamton, he didn't score either, Okay. So, you know, maybe he's got this in his, in, his, in his bag, but it hadn't been shown yet. So all of a sudden, you know what? He hits the first three-pointer, and you're kind of sitting there kicking yourself, and then he hits a second. And you're like, oh, oh maybe he's got this in his bag. Maybe we need to adjust. So here's Malik Hall for, for those who, who don't know his, his measurables. 6'7", 215. Jared Roden, 6'6", 210. As you mentioned, at that point, you know what? It might have made sense to put Roden in the game. Maybe go Sandro on Tillman or put Roe on Tillman. Take Ike out. Obiagu was clearly not having a good game. He had zero points, one rebound, three turnovers, and two personal fouls. It might have been time to get off of the Twin Tower rotation at that point and then put your more athletic power forward or your got more of your hybrid power forward on him to neutralize him. Why? Why not? I, okay, I, I got I to gotta temper myself. These are the kind of things that just jumped right off the page at me and said, you make these kind of minor adjustments here or there. You don't turn it over off the inbounds passes. You, you match up better on these defensive assignments on Malik Hall. You have some better offensive continuity and you don't lose this game. Even with all these things we're pointing out here, Mike, we lost by three points. And if we tightened up a few of the little things that we didn't do this game, it could have been a different outcome, Mike. I mean, we had zero fast break points and zero second chance points this game, Mike. How does a team this big not get a few offensive rebounds and go in and go up with it? Oh, we, we got a fast break point. I guess this kind of counts as a fast break point. Remember when Powell fell down and didn't get back up on D? And then we got the rebound, and we just chucked it down to him, and he's sitting there all by himself. I don't that count counts. cherry picking, That counts. Mike. Two points. Two points for us. Good for us. We, ah, were also, I, we were also very loose with the ball, Mike. We had 17 turnovers, and that's just way too many against a uh, team like Michigan State. No, if, if you're going to play an elite level of basketball, and it's early November still, so, you know, there there's time to work on these things. I wasn't expecting the rust to be completely off as the new season began, but when you're going to play those hotly contested matches in the Big East tournament, against the better teams in the Big East, and obviously in March, you're not going to win too many games if you're turning the ball over 17 times. That's just a stat that doesn't normally bear out in the win column. It's just, it was a contrast of what we saw from Michigan State that kind of just, it bothered me. I mean, we already knew that an Izzo coach team was going to be fundamentally sound, but, but they did the things that you need to do to win in March already by the third game of the season. They were playing gritty D. They were boxing out. They were crashing the glass to the tune of 14 offensive rebounds. 
and they got they got bench play, 29 points and 13 rebounds. I mean, we could pick on so many little nuances of this game, and it just felt like whatever point of, of emphasis you wanted to put the microscope on, Michigan State just slightly outclassed us. And that could go back to Willard. That could go back to the players. I put that on the coach because in this kind of a moment, it seemed like Izzo's team was more prepared mentally to execute in those spots than Seton Hall was. And again, with all these things that we've pointed out, we were still up by five with two minutes left, Mike. This game should have been in the bag. All right, so what I want to do is I really want to break down this 243 because there were different components or different plays that kind of occurred that, you know what, this is going to come back to that poise. This is going to come back to leadership and, and the right coaching. And hopefully we execute better in a similar scenario down the stretch in the future. But let, let's go through it. So we're up five with 243 to play. And I get it. Powell's gassed. So I, I can't kill him for missing the free throw on the four-point play opportunity. But you make that free throw there, and it's a full two-possession game. That's uh, a big free throw miss. And I know people don't want to kill him. The guy, the kid put in 37 and poured his heart out. But that that's a pretty big free throw to miss with under three minutes to play. But we get the offensive rebound by Sandro, and he kicks it back out to Kale at the top of the key. He fakes his defender out, a la the Kentucky game, side dribbles to his left and decides not to take the three-point attempt. He dribbled into the paint and could have easily pulled up for like a little mid-range foul line jumper, but goes all the way to the basket, loses control, gets blocked, and the ball no, goes back Mike, the other Mike, way. Mike, I think, I, think I think you're changing the narrative to fit your story here, Mike. There, there could have been a foul call on it. He drove to the basket. It was a good drive. They bodied up, and he missed the shot. Okay, they could have been a whistle on that. Sure, sure. I, my, my takeaway from that little you know, that little example or that, that moment in the game was going to be where is the lost art of just taking a mid-range jump shot? There was a beautiful open shot from the elbow. I can't argue with that. And he hits that shot potentially, and you're up by seven but he doesn't you're right he doesn't get the call they go the other way they miss a layup so even after kale's miss michigan state comes back down they miss a shot i think i think sandro blocked it you don't want to give him any credit for that nelson gets the ball he, he cross court passes it to powell and powell rushes it up the left side and basically goes and attacks the basket for like this this little floater right i want the kid to be aggressive so no that probably was not the best shot at that moment right what I didn't like about that whole possession, Mike, is why does Nelson cross-court pass it in the backcourt, way at the backcourt, down by the baseline, over to Powell. Nelson is the point guard. Bring it up. Powell will have that drive anytime he wants it. Nelson should have walked that ball up, kill some clock. I know you're going to come up and tell me the clock doesn't matter at that point. It's two minutes left in that game, Mike. You slow it down. Willard should have been yelling, slow it down, slow it down. There's no need to go and take that kind of shot within 10 seconds into the clock. Okay, so, so it's not about the clock itself as to how quick the shot went up. It was the type of shot within the offense. And I'm never going to complain about Powell taking a shot, but when he rushed to the basket for that floater, the defense or our defensive rotation back was not prepared. So all of a sudden Michigan state gets the rebound and it's a three on two the other way. And you're probably not paying attention to what Bill Raftery is saying at that point, but he's as the ball is being pushed up the court, he goes, Oh, Michigan state's going to get a good look here. And they did. They kind of ran the three on two the right way. And then boom, they hit a three to cut it to two. They had good floor balance on the on the transition. And that probably doesn't happen if we do what you said. Nelson walks it up. We get into a half-court set. Even if Powell takes that shot with the shot clock running down, we're probably back into a defensive position where the floor is not unbalanced and they're getting an open three-pointer. And if Michigan State has to grind it out for another 30 seconds to get that three-pointer, well, then good for them. So, so that's where the issue was with him taking that shot as quickly as he did. Then we come back down after the three-pointer by Michigan State, and Sandro gets a look at a three with 10 seconds to go in the shot clock. It wasn't a horrible shot, but the way he was shooting up until that point in the game, I don't think I want Sandro shooting the three there. No, Agree or he, disagree? No, even if he hit that three a couple minutes prior to put us up, it's not a shot for him that game. He's not been shooting it all that well. He's, he, to be honest with you, he hasn't shot it well in his career. So it's not a look I want to see at that point in the game. And that's not a bang on, on Sandro. Sandro can do a lot of good things for us, but not there. Okay. Uh, uh, but we get the offensive rebound again. 
And what people can kind of forget now is that they the rule resets the shot clock to only 20, not 30. So it's not like we can kick the ball out to half court and take the, the air out of the ball and run another 30 seconds. So with 10 seconds to go on the remaining shot clock at that point, Powell puts up another three. Here's the issue there. I mean, it's, it's not a bad look again, but what happens on a three-point shot is you're going to necessarily get a longer rebound. And in that situation, we should have guys getting back on D in anticipation of that. But we don't. I don't know if that's just getting, you know, swept up in the moment, watching the ball, but we should have had better balance back on D again. So what happens? Long rebound, Michigan State runs out, and then boom, Winston hits the second three in that sequence, which is, you know, it's, it's an onions type shot, you know, to hit a, hit a three on the road like that down two. And then before you blink, we're down one. And then, you know, I give Powell all the credit in the world to put his head down, push the ball back up court, get those two free throws and put us back in the lead. But but the reality is that sequence prior to us trailing by one probably shouldn't have played out that way based on the shot selection. And then we already talked about the breakdown of the zone coming out of the timeout and then Hall hitting the layup. So I'm I'm not going to belabor that point again. You want to talk about the last two foul calls or the, the non-calls? Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you, one was worse than the other, but I think the second should get the call. So the first one, Nelson gives a pretty feed to a cutting Sandro. Sandro goes in there. Gets mugged, no call. Should have been a foul. Okay, so you don't call it when Sandro goes in there. The final play, when Powell drives, you got to give him that reputation call, Mike. You got to give it to him. I mean, we spent the entire year last year watching Marcus Howard get farted on, and he's going to the line. I, I agree, and I don't agree. That last call on Powell, it looked 50-50 from first glance on TV. I know what you want. You want the reputation call. You want the superstar call. You're going to get a lot of those throughout the course of the year. We've already seen it on a lot of Powell's three-point attempts. So let, you know, let's not lose sight of what's going to happen here. We're going to get the Miles Powell superstar treatment. You wanted it in the big moment. I could make the argument that on the possession in which he got fouled by Tillman to put us up by one, that was a little bit of a 50-50 call. And he got the benefit of the doubt. I, I thought on the last sequence, they could have easily swallowed the whistle there. I have an issue really more on the, on the Sandro attack to the basket. People are going to try to take away Powell in late game situations. They know the ball is going to go to him. They're going to face guard him. He's going to face a double team. And Willard actually ran a great play. And Nelson executed it. Sandro slips to the basket. You got a two on one. And he goes right to the rim. He finally goes strong. And he got hit on both arms and the face. This was not like, oh, he got him on the wrist and maybe you couldn't see it unless it was slow-mo. It was blatantly obvious. And I know you're going to, oh, maybe Sandro only makes one out of two there. You know, he couldn't handle that pressure. One out of two ties the game. And that changes how the rest of the game plays out from there on out. So to not make that call in our home arena, that bothers me. And, and what bothers me is maybe the way that the, the referees are selected for these types of matchups. In the Gavit games, the road team got their conferences officials to call the game. Well, why does it have to be that way? Why can't we get a officiating crew from a different conference that has no affiliation to either one of us? I don't understand that. It's an odd decision to make. The home team has got the benefit of being a home team, so the away team gets the conference officials. It's kind of silly, to be honest with you. I, I think in general, I think the officials did a relatively good job all game long. So you can't bang on them being Big Ten favorites, but those last two possessions were horrendous. Hey, look, the, the Michigan State fans were all over Twitter saying that they could have easily called an N1, though, on, on Hall's layup because Gill was kind of all over him on that attempt as well. Yeah, oh, okay. The, the point is that was a little deflating to kind of see a, a, an egregious non-call like that end such a, such a great game. Look, I'm sounding really bitter. And I, I don't want to come across as bitter. This was a monumental moment. The crowd was the third largest ever at The Rock at 14,000 plus. They did a phenomenal job. Powell puts in 37 and, you know, has a game for the ages. It, it just kind of stinks to walk away from a moment like that and not have the cherry on top, which is the victory. But, you know, if we're going to take some positives, I want to go back to this crowd for a moment. They really were commendable. You know what? The Cassius Winston situation with his brother dying earlier in the week and all the heavy hearts that were there on the Michigan State sideline, the ovation that they gave to him to start the game. Man, that, that was just a class act by the Seton Hall fans, and, and that should be recognized. It really should. I've spent a lot of time banging on the crowd and the fan base itself for not showing up. It showed up great this time. It was such a great crowd that it, Tom Izzo, coach for the Michigan State Spartans, 
gave them praise during his post-game conference, and it was loud, and it came through on the TV as well. So good, good job by the fan base. It just felt like, though, that that crowd wanted to erupt even more than it actually did. Right? I mean, it, it was loud and it had its moments, but every time that we strung one or two, you know, high quality plays together, whether it be offensive or defensively, we didn't have that run of like three, four, five consecutive moments where they, they're going to just blow the roof off. It, I, it was it was one play away multiple times from that roof going off the rock in Newark, Mike. It was. All right, so, so let's end this game on, on, on this point. I agree with you. Missed opportunity, but I am still absolutely proud of the entire team powell kind of you know getting his butt back uh in shape or having the ankle get rehabbed to be there in that moment he said this, these are the kind of games that you you don't miss in your career i mean this was a true game for the ages i was glad to be a part of uh, being able to watch it and take it all in it is disappointing but i think we're going to look back 10 years from now and remember that game as a classic i, now, I really do now speaking of disappointing mike we didn't have chance to either lick our wounds or celebrate any of the good things from that game because the next day, the NCAA proved me right, Mike, because it hit Seton Hall with penalties for the Torian Thompson recruiting tampering violation. I'm so done with this story. I don't want to say I'm done with this guy, but, you know, Torian's name and associated to the topics we cover, it's just exhausting at this point. Mike, in my opinion, 99% of recruiting problems is adults acting poorly. That's what you end up having here. And we had some issues here, Mike. This When, when the facts came out, it, it didn't look so good. Sour grapes. We talked about it on the last podcast. You know, Bayheim got annoyed that somebody came kind of, you know, poaching one of his guys. But once you start digging into it, I think you end up finding these types of behaviors across all the situations. It, it doesn't defend Holloway and Willard for what they uncovered. But I, I said this the last time. I think this happens across all type of transfer situations. But let's put it in the context. They found there to be 241 impermissible calls that Holloway made to Thompson's mother. You know, Shaw is defending it by, hey, I had a relationship with his mom that goes beyond basketball. You know, it was religion. It was family-based. You know, we, we established a rapport when I recruited him out of high school. So it was still just kind of staying connected because that's the kind of people we are. Okay. I, I, I joked with you and said, well, why don't we just give his mom a burner phone? You know, and if we're going to call 241 times, you say, Mama Thompson, you only answered my call on this phone. Mike, I'm ashamed to say I haven't called my mother 241 times in the past two years. <laughs> Uh, and, and then the fallout's the following. So Will Willard has the two-game suspension, serving the exhibition, and then the game against Wagner. Holloway has the four-game suspension over at St. Pete. The fine that Seton Hall got handed down uh, as per the APP is that they were fined $5,000 plus 1% of its men's basketball budget. Uh, they're on three years probation. They have restricted recruiting contact. There is no postseason ban. Holloway gets a 20-month show cause. But to me, the biggest takeaway is they lose the one scholarship for 2020-2021 season. That's the biggest takeaway. I know you want to talk about the show cause. So so let, let's, let's talk about the show cause and how that impacts Shaheen Holloway and possibly Seton Hall in the future. And then we can talk about the scholarship itself. Well, you know, people are wondering what does that show cause do? The show cause restriction make it difficult for a coach with this show cause order to get another collegiate job. Anytime a school hires that coach with an outstanding show cause order, it can be penalized for merely hiring him. Additionally, that school could be severely punished if, that, if such a coach commits additional violations while the order is still in effect. So basically, these coaches end up kind of getting quasi blackballed for that time period they it's like they can't move now luckily shaheen's got a job at st pete's as we know conjecture rumors in the air everyone's thinking one more good year and coach willard might be looking at greener pastures so and the rumors everywhere right. are here comes shaheen back home so you're concerned that if this hypothetical plays itself out and willard goes on to a, a different opportunity you're concerned that Holloway might not be a viable candidate for that potential coaching vacancy due to this show cause. I'm less concerned that he's not a viable candidate at more than it kind of limits what we can look at. You know this is a hard job to hire for. 
and we know Shaheen's already got interest or has shown interest, what happens here? What happens if the administration decides we can't go to Shaheen right now and we move in a different direction? What if that direction ends up being wrong? Uh, it's it's not like we haven't swung and missed before. Too much of a hypothetical at this point in time. I, I do believe if the hypothetical scenario that we just painted where Willard's not here and you're looking for the next coach, I still think he's in the mix. And if Seton Hall wants to make him the guy, they will address the show cause issue with the NCAA and they will move forward and hire him if that's what they want to do. And they'll let the chips fall where they may, or they'll vet that out before they go ahead and make that hire. Let's, let's save that conversation for a different day and time at this point. I'm more concerned about the immediate impact of knowing what the future has been impacted with. And that is the loss of this scholarship. I mean, we were talking about just trying to sign a player like Earl Timberlake. Guess what? He, he couldn't technically sign now. We don't have that scholarship available. We are at our maximum scholarship capacity for the upcoming season. And, and I want to talk about the impact of losing that scholarship. And I'm going to quote J.P. Pelsman's recent article. He talks about Powell's transformation for who he is today and how he kind of changed his body to become this dynamic player. And then goes on to write, and I quote, in other words, he wasn't a ready-made superstar the moment he stepped on a college campus. Programs such as Seton Hall cannot afford to lose a scholarship, unlike the perennial top 10 college basketball teams. Seton Hall and Willard cannot look down the bench for another high school All-American if someone does not pan out. I, I think there's more fallout beyond that. So we're ready to kind of move on from Earl Timberlake and move on to the next potential recruit that could could have filled his scholarship op- opening, and that was Matthew Alexander Moncrief. And he's not thinking about announcing till the spring. What if he decides to announce sooner? We can't take him now or whoever the next guy is, maybe it's a big time transfer. We are now hamstrung by the opportunity missed with the penalty imposed by the loss of the scholarship. And we joked about it before. Sometimes with Seton Hall, when you're going after the under the radar three and you miss, that guy is not now a role player. That is a guy who cannot step on the court at a competitive Big East level. And that's what I think Pelsman was alluding to is let's pick on the situation itself. The guy that we got the penalty for can't get it on the court for us. So we got, we got a recruiting violation for the 12th man on our bench. I know. Now we're back to banging on your favorite guy to bang on (laughs) my man, Torian Thompson. Now here's going to be the interesting point. Now that all the penalties have gone through and we understand what they are, does he start getting time? Does he start getting PT off the bench? And we're, we're, we're jumping ahead, but he, but he, but he didn't. He didn't get PT well, in the St. Louis game, right? I mean, doesn't that tell the story right there? I don't know that the first game out, you want him to come out at a road game in that environment. I, Tommy, I they were, I we're, we're, we're going to go over the box score in St. Louis in two seconds. They were then, up by 29 ask, in the second half. Let me ask you a question, Mike, before we get before we get too far into the St. Louis uh, review. Why is he still on the squad? I, I think it just plays itself out to the end of the season. Uh, if somebody truly gets hurt or you have a, a rash of inju- injuries, you, you may need them. So you're not just going to, you're not, the kid didn't, the kid didn't do anything wrong. He, he wasn't the one who violated the, the rules. His mom did, you know, it's not like Torian was, was caught with 241 calls with, with Shaw. So I'm not kicking him off the team. I'm not taking his scholarship away. I, I can't do that. I mean, that, that's just not within the bounds of what we do as a program or what Willard would ever do. So he's on this team, but it, it just adds insult to injury that the guy that we're losing a scholarship over is not even a contributing member to the roster. But we know things have ways of taking care of themselves in the offseason, etc. My question is this. You knew he wasn't going to play a big role on this team this year. Based on what you saw last year, how he was used, it's just a little, it's silly. I, it's I mean, salt in the wound. It's salt in the wound. What? I, I, I still you, love you, myself some Torian Thompson. I know He's you my do, man. and I promise I won't go there with who we could have replaced him with or you know who else wanted to come to Seton Hall, but it's just it's a little bit of salt in the wound. It's, we're gonna it's stay, that insult to injury. We're going to stay in the here and now, Mike. 
because we've got another game to recap. Seton Hall goes to St. Louis and beats the Billikens 83 to 66. Seton Hall start off like a team on fire with a 10-0 run out the gates. Seton Hall took a 15-point lead into the locker room, and they started the second half like they did the first half with a 7-0 run to balloon the lead to 22 and then remained in control the rest of the way. It pushed the lead as high as 29 at one point. Miles Powell's led the way again with 26 points. Sandro had a good bounce-back game with 17-7, and and Quincy McKnight chipped in 12. Romaro Gill makes another statement game with four big block shots, and the bench had 19 points in total. And the Pirates did something they normally don't do. They shot the ball extremely well from the charity stripe, making 21 of 26 for an 80% clip. Mike, what do you take away from this game? Uh, not much. I I got a couple of things that I want to kind of get to, but the bottom line is they did what they needed to do versus a St. Louis team that only returned seven total points out of the 66 that they scored versus us last year. They were a young team. They had a couple different new pieces that were supposed to be contributing, but the reality is you and I talked about this. They are a bottom half projected finish in the eight ten, and the eight ten is a inferior conference to the Big East. This is a game that if we're the number 12 ranked team in the country, you got to go on the road. I know there could be a little bit of a trap emotionally coming down off of the Michigan State game, but you take care of business and you move on. And, and they did that. I want to say this. I do not think anyone gave us enough credit going into this game. I believe the Vegas line got down to 5.5 points, Mike. What did I tell you I wanted to see out of this game? You wanted them to be doubled up. I mean, there's, there's a difference. Joking around, I said I wanted to see a 50-point win. Well, in seriousness, I thought this was a 30-point game easy. They got up to 29, and in Willard fashion, they took the foot off the neck and let them kind of dork around toward the end of it, and they kind of got closer. But this game was not a 17-point game. Good for the Pirates going in there and abusing this Billikens team. I felt like it was somewhere between, you know, 12 to 15, you know, that the, the lead was going to kind of jostle back and forth between that 15 to 20 mark. They pushed it to another, you know, 10 point level above that. So you're right. They, they kind of controlled this game, you know, to be up by almost 29 in the second half, to be up by 20 consistently for the entire second half, you're not being threatened. He could have pulled his starters out a little bit earlier than he actually did. I don't, I don't need to win these games by 40. I, I know you want to kind of put a different type of stamp on the final, the final look of the score you know, in the papers or on the national news. But to me, you go on the road, you win by almost 20 points. Everyone's healthy. You get out of Dodge. You get a true road win added into your net, your RPIs, whatever you want to kind of look at for the, the Ken Palm evaluations. It, it was overall a good game for just getting the job done. But let's go on into a couple of the nuances of the game. I do have some things that I kind of want to, I want to kind of poke at a little bit, but that's okay. Powell finished with 26, but I want to pick on Powell. Am I allowed to pick on Powell here? Uh, well, you can pick on anybody you want, Mike. So, so Powell was not efficient in this game. He was six of 18 from the floor. And this was a chance in my opinion, where he could have done some more distributing. There were times where I, I'll pick one example early in the second half. We're out on a fast break. It's a three-on-one, and Powell's got the ball in the middle of the court with both guys on his wing, on opposite wings. And instead of giving up the ball to the two trailers, he takes it all the way to the rim and gets fouled. He ends up making the two free throws, but that's a situation where you got to drop the ball off and get an easy layup, no? Oh, absolutely. I thought he wasn't, uh, you know, you always take care of the guys that run with you on that fast break. And he could have dumped that ball off nice and easy. He could have even made it look a little flashy. I thought I actually thought he was going to go behind the back down to the tr uh, to the wing and get that easy bucket. I just thought there were a couple other moments of those 18 shots where he aggressively got into the paint and looked for his own instead of making that one extra pass. And this was the game when you're up by 20, where maybe you didn't have to jack up an extra, you know, three or four balls from three, three to four feet behind the three-point line. You know, taking a couple extra dribbles, find that open guy this would have been that opportunity for him to do so. So I was, I was a little disappointed with that, but how, how often can you be disappointed when a guy leads your team in scoring with 26 and, and you win by, you know, you win going away. Well, I'll tell you this. I think 
St. Louis was trying to make muck it up a little bit. There was a lot of chatter going on for a 29-point game. I think they were trying to get a little physical. They were trying to bump and grind in different positions. And, and I think Powell's going to try to show them, hey, man, you can't hang with this. Sure, but I'm going to hold my breath now every time he goes to the basket for the rest of the season. I was probably doing that to start the year, but now that he's already had the injury and you're afraid that he's going to re-aggravate it, he took some hard falls. I mean, teams are going to take their best shot at him, not by just trying to prevent him from scoring, but they're going to foul him a little bit harder. Don't you think? You know, he's been doing this now, going down like this for three years. I think it's just part of the game. You know, even the, even the announcers were saying – Miles tends to go down a lot on these three-point shots, so it's just part of the game, and it you just got to say he's going to bounce up. I know one thing that drove you crazy, Mike. When St. Louis made a little bit of a run in the first half, we did not adjust well to that 1-3-1 that St. Louis threw out at us. Uh, Coach Ford over there decided, you know what, we're going to give them a different look and see how well they adjust, and we didn't adjust. We didn't adjust at all. We, you and I talked about this again as the game was was taking place. Where is the weak spot in a 1-3-1 zone? It's on a baseline. Right, because you got one guy back. So if you can sneak a guy and run him back and forth along the baseline, that's supposed to be the offensive set. You get Once you can kind of attack those corners, the defense has to collapse, and it just makes the 1-3-1 very vulnerable. We must have went 10 possessions before we actually got it to Powell deep on the left corner and he hit a three to kind of push the lead back out to, I think it was like 10 or 13 at that point. It, it shouldn't have taken that long. They looked discombobulated. The offensive uh, flow was just all over the place. We were turning the ball over. We were settling for long three-pointers. Where was a timeout? I mean, they didn't need a timeout in terms of the score, but why couldn't Willard at that point just sit there and go, all right, timeout, everybody come over, take out the whiteboard, draw up a couple X's and O's and be like, here's where I want you guys to be. Uh, where was that? Well, you know, it, it might be hard to complain about a game where we had a 29-point uh, lead at one point and we won by 17, but we tend to do these things. Mamu looked like that 17-7, and seven, while it was a nice bounce back, looked a little soft. He's still taking it to the hole, you know, in that Euro style. Jaron Roden, your boy, looked out of sorts again, man. He was taking all <laughs> sorts of crazy shots and went 2 of 12 from the field. How do I, I can't defend a two for 12. I don't know what to say. I mean, if we're going to play the box score game, I can play the box score game. If I play the eye test game, he still didn't look good. J Jared looked like he was out of sorts offensively. He's rushing his shot. He doesn't have his legs under him on the three pointer. I don't know if it's the new distance, just something's off. Right. But we've been hyping him up to be the guy who's going to take that next step. I'm sitting there talking about the hustle that he gave you in the Wagner game, and you, you gave me a hard time. I'm like, but he's still putting 11 points. But he was, you know, he was two for 12. He only, he only scored seven points. He got to the free throw line a couple of times. He needs to be able to help extend that defense. And the bigger takeaway was that he was 0 for 5 from 3. I like his game. Even when he's having a bad game, he's still got you eight rebounds. He's going to be a high-energy player. I, I don't doubt that. I need him to be that guy who can also stretch the defense when Kale or Sandra is not having a good game offensively. And today and the Michigan State game, a little bit concerning. Well, let's stay positive here, Mike, for a second. And whoa, did you see that? And for I think this is the first form, but Quincy McKnight is our whoa, did you see that guy this week? Early on, he leaked along the left side and took a pass ahead from Miles Kale and threw down a angry looking dunk to quiet the crowd mike sometimes it's just it's fun to just do the whoa did you see that just just to have a moment this specific whoa did you see that was impactful for other reasons when you're on the road in a sold out building you know that crowd was like ah oh, we're gonna take down the number 12 team today Let, let's get into this and when q throws down that dunk the decibel level of that crowd just kind of completely dropped off you know and part of that was also our 10-0 our run to start the game or the, the 17 to three output. Uh, and you got kind of just deflated the crowd, but that was kind of more of like when UConn used to come into our building, I always, always like to kind of play those analogies and one of their players would just impose their will on us early in the game. And you'd be like, uh Oh, this is going to be a long day. And kind of, that's how it felt. Like when he threw that dunk down and kind of screamed to the crowd, he was just going to be like, this is our house today. You know, you're St. Louis and we are going to stomp on you throughout the majority of this game. And then that's what happened. And I, 
that's why I love that play. All right, but but as good as that moment was, I, I want to transition to our next segment, which is dumb things the announcer said. I, I got a couple for you today. So there was a moment in the Michigan State game when Fox One came back out of a timeout and posted a picture of Kevin Willard and the results of his last four seasons in the NCAA tournament. And there it was, first round, first round, second round, first round. And Raf just goes, well, that is a part of who Willard is. And then he didn't say anything else. He just let it sit there for Gus to pick up. <laughs> Raph let, let his partner hang there for a bit. I mean, should Raph have just said something else? What was Raph thinking that Gus was going to follow that up with there? I, I mean, Gus said a, a couple of nice complimentary things, and then Raph kind of piggybacked on it. I think Raph wanted it to sit there to be like, you know what? That's part of his story that he has not had tournament success to this point. And Gus did not run with it from that capacity. So I guess good for Gus. Good for Raph for kind of taking a shot indirectly. But I, I didn't like the fact that he put it out there that way. If you, if you got to say something, just go ahead and say it. The second thing that I have on this week's docket for dumb things the announcer said in the St. Louis game, Kevin Lehman doing the color said he, Willard, needed to get the puppies organized as Willard passed Raftery on the overall win list when they came out of a timeout and showed his progression of, of total wins throughout his Seton Hall coaching career. You know, he passed Raf at like the beginning of last season. Like, what, 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 you know, he just had nothing to say. So you're going to try to throw an homage to Raftery there? That was, that was weak. Weak sauce. You got to be a little better prepared for these kind of things. If the, if the graphic's coming up, you need to know what you're going to talk about. I mean, say, say something like, you know what? Ten years ago, I bet you we didn't think we'd be putting this graphic up here with Willard at 170-something wins, right? You know, give me something like that. Uh. Well, Mike, this is going to be a rough week for us all because there will not be another game until Saturday. And that Saturday game, well, going to leave something to be desired as we face Florida A&M on Saturday at the Rock. Now, you know, the nicest thing we can say about the Rattlers this season is that they've traveled to some nice destinations. They've got their 0-4 so far this year with losses to University of Southern California, Hawaii, and University of the Pacific at the Outrigger Resorts Rainbow Classic. And we'll be their first game since the 11th of this month. They were fifth last season in the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference and they were chosen for ninth this year. A&M is also ineligible for postseason play due to failure to meet the APR multi-year threshold. What is the APR? Well, it's the calculation that shows how well student athletes do in their classes. This year, guard Rod Melton Jr. leads the team in scoring with 11 points a game. And guard MJ Rampalp leads the team in rebounding with 5.5 per game. Now, we tried to go behind enemy lines, Michael, and I contacted the Tallahassee Democrat to see if we can get a reporter. They were unaware that Florida A&M actually existed, Michael. <laughs> that was a minute and a half of my life that I'm just never going to get back. Did, did I really have to sit there to take in all that about Florida A&M? Uh, th this is another glorified exhibition game. I'm going to give Willard credit here. This is a strategically placed game on the schedule. You have the emotional high of the Michigan State game. You have the quick turnaround of a true road test. It's good to kind of come back, have a week off, and regroup and kind of have a bit of a tune-up before you head off to the Bahamas for a big tournament and opportunity for some more key games. This should be rotations, minutes for some of the, the bench guys. This should be make sure we get out of, out of this game with nobody hurt. I don't care about anything else related to florida a&m this is going to be us coming back giving you a couple highlights next week on the recap and then talking to johnny fanta about what's going on in the bahamas oh oh spoiler alert we're gonna have john Fanta on the podcast to talk about atlantis well he may be back on track mike who's he Miles Powell with the countdown at 24-94. With 37 against Michigan State and 26 against St. Louis, he had 63 for the week, which leaves him at 17-53. And as we mentioned last week, next one to pass on the list is Walter Dukes. Does he have 36 in him? 
You better not have 36 in against Florida A&M. There's, there is no reason for Miles to be on the court to have to score 36 against Florida A&M. He should put in his standard 20 to 25. They should get him off the floor, you know, let him work up a lather, and then everybody else should get their time and, and get their minutes. I, I want to end this week's podcast more positive than kind of how we were throughout the, the first half. This was a really special opportunity, this Michigan State game. I know we're disappointed. I know that kind of came through in some of our analysis. But at the end of the day, you know, as, as much as I was kind of going back and forth with my cousin, you know, direct messaging about his perspective on the game and my perspective on the game, I was still proud to be a Seton Hall fan because the next day when I'm talking to people at work or I'm talking to someone like my cousin, they are talking about Seton Hall basketball on a national stage. And that's that's pretty cool. And that's something that we're hopefully going to get to do throughout the course of the rest of the season. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to bring more cheerful recaps in those kind of moments. And, and the Bahamas is just around the corner, but this was a pretty cool environment to be in. I'm just a little disappointed that we did not come out on top and kind of put our extra stamp on that special moment. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Final prediction for next week's game, Pirates by 30. Next week is the game where they should win 125 to 50. Come on. All right, I'm I'm done. Tommy, have a good week. I'll, I'll catch you on the flip side. Go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.